Good day, gentlemen. Eighteen months ago, the first evidence of intelligent life off the Earth was discovered. It was buried 40 feet below the lunar surface, near the crater Tycho. Its origin and purpose, still a total mystery. Welcome to the now playing reviews of 2001 A Space Odyssey and 2010 The Year We Make Contact. Hosted by Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. Today we're discussing 2010, the year we make contact, starring Roy Scheider, John Lithgow, Helen Mirren, and directed by Peter Hyams. My God, it's full of stars. This is Arnie, and I'm sorry for the delay. My voice processing circuits are not functioning. Stuart in LA. This is Jacob, and I'm not sure if I'm homicidal, suicidal, neurotic, psychotic, or just plain broke. I think we just lied to you. (laughs) That's how you got me on that King retrospective. (laughs) It'll be over before you know it. Yeah. (laughs) No, there's lots of good films during it. Well, what will be over before you know it is this franchise. I can't believe it. The second and final installment. It's been a while since we've done a two-off. But yeah, Odyssey 2 was so far the conclusion of what has been on the page anyway. A four-part trilogy? (laughs) It's kind of funny. So long since we've done a two-off, how quickly we forget Job and the Lawnmower. I consider that one agonizing, never-ending night shift horrible. <laughs> but uh, yeah, okay, maybe that's a two-off, but uh, I-, I see it different than you, Arnie. But yeah, uh, sadly, we're not talking Kubrick this week. He was asked, of course he was asked, but Kubrick had no desire to return to what he did. How could you? After you make what many call the greatest science fiction of all time, you're setting yourself up for failure by going back. You can never go back. And indeed... Arthur C. Clarke tried to get him to make his next script. He said no. He went so far as to even destroy and hide all the sets and props because he knew that MGM would reuse them for other science fiction films, and he did not want that to happen. So he said no very firmly, and this concept of a sequel sat untouched for more than a decade. I remember this movie coming out. I didn't know a whole lot about 2001 back when I was nine years old when 2010 came out. But I remember this coming out. I remember the ads. I remember being fascinated, you know, being a Star Wars sci-fi kid. The thought of, in my lifetime, having us make contact with aliens. Sure, I was kind of into it, but never saw it. I'd never seen it until this review. And to be perfectly honest, I knew 
absolutely nothing about it, including the cast. I was just happy to see names I knew. I'm like, oh, Roy Scheider, John Lithgow. I was getting more and more excited as the cast list went on. There was something I knew about this film, even though I hadn't seen it at this point. I knew because of Universal Studios. They replicate the spacewalk in there. And as a young kid, I just remember, oh, it's 2000-something. And so when I watched 2001 for the first time, I'm like, "Where's where's that spacewalk that they do at Universal Studios? But I remember sitting down and trying to watch this as a kid, and I didn't get past the opening scene with Schneider talking to a Russian at a bunch of satellite dishes. It, boring. Hey, that's MacGyver's boss, man. <laughs> I wasn't watching MacGyver at that time. But no, I have seen this film since. I saw it after 2001. Curious. What can they do? How can you follow that up? So I've seen it once before. This is just my second time, though, coming back to it. That was my big question after 2001, is what the hell are they doing with that space baby? Well, you could find out years before this movie came out, because Arthur C. Clarke was the one that made it happen. It wasn't, of course, the studio would have made another one, although I wonder if they would have done it without Kubrick or Arthur C. Clarke. But Arthur C. Clarke had the rights to the characters. He had the right to publish the sequel book, 1982. And so I bought it at the time. I had a love-hate relationship with 2001 A Space Odyssey at that time. I didn't understand it. And that frustrated me. So I thought, hey, here's a sequel that's going to tell me everything that I didn't understand and resolve everything that I want answers for. So I tried to read it. I wasn't able to understand it. And then I just said, screw it. I'll wait for the movie, which only came a couple years later. So you saw this in theaters? I saw it on cable. No one would take me to the movie, and I think I had other things going, but I was curious about it, and I saw it very soon when it came on video or HBO or or whatever it was. I saw it on television for sure, but I saw it within a year of it being released. And with some degree of enthusiasm, although I, I don't know that I thought it was going to be great, I just thought it was going to give me closure. Peter Himes. Gotta say, I would have run through a long list of names where I said, that's the guy to follow in Kubrick's footsteps. Do you guys know Peter? I know him after the fact. I've seen End of Days and Musketeer. (laughs) (laughs) And I actually like the Presidio, which was one of his follow-ups to this. Okay, well, he had had a up-and-coming sci-fi career before this. Capricorn 1 was a big hit. It was about a faked moon landing. To tie it back to Kubrick, who allegedly faked that footage, uh, he wrote the movie uh, about uh, O.J. Simpson and Elliot Gould and all were astronauts that found out that they didn't land on the moon or Mars or whatever it was. It was a soundstage, and it was a 70s conspiracy movie. That was a pretty big hit. And then he followed that up with a movie called Outland, which is basically High Noon remade on Jupiter. And it's kind of cool. It's a Sean Connery film at a time where Sean Connery didn't make many good films. It's got a really cool alien Ridley Scott vibe to it. It's it's not bad. I rewatched it recently, and for a B-movie, I say go for it. So while I don't see brilliance, I don't see a Kubrick in those movies, I can see a young technician who had worked with science fiction and who had the technical know-how to kind of pull off some of the things that Kubrick did when no one had access to his sets and props and and savvy. So I think it was out of Himes' enthusiasm about the book that Arthur C. Clarke granted him access to it. It was with his blessing and with Kubrick's eventually. Kubrick did eventually call Peter Himes and say, yeah, go make your movie. What do I care? I'm making Full Metal Jacket. (laughs) And so he basically had the blessing of studio, author, 
and director to go his own path and to take this story to the next level. But I think we need to really point out the vast difference of the cinema landscape between 1968 when 2001 came out and 1984 when 2010 came out. We said in the last podcast, 2001 really kicked off adult sci-fi. By 1984, Star Wars had exploded that genre to a point we'd already been two or three Star Trek movies deep. I mean, we were down to ripoffs like The Last Starfighter by 1984. The expectations were so much higher now, and it is all going back to Kubrick. My thought going in was that no matter what this movie is, it can't be as pretty as Kubrick. It can't be as incomprehensible as Kubrick. I was right on both counts, but we'll get into it. Yeah, I think going into this, you got to realize this is not Kubrick for better or for worse. And you you have to set your expectations for that. I am not coming in expecting a sequel to what Kubrick did it with 2001. I am expecting something totally different. And I would say that even if Kubrick had somehow miraculously agreed to do it, the way that Arthur C. Clarke writes his book, you can hear my books and nachos, it's out now, I've reviewed 2010. Even if Kubrick made that, I think it's just a more linear, narratively driven story. It would be very, very hard for him to make it as obtuse and psychedelic as he did the original work. Keep in mind, that first movie was a collaboration. Arthur C. Clarke wrote it at the exact same time that Kubrick was writing the screenplay. They bounced ideas off of each other. Here, this is all Arthur C. Clarke, and I think it reflects his sensibilities much more than it had any Kubrick in it. Well, Stuart, why don't you tell them what those sensibilities are in a plot summary, which must be much easier this week than last. And longer, somehow, but yes, (laughs) it is. Nine years have passed since Earth lost contact with the spaceship Discovery, and retired NSA chief Dr. Haywood Floyd, now played by Roy Scheider, still seeks answers for why the HAL 9000 computer turned against its human crew and what happened to astronaut Dave Bowman after he came in contact with that giant monolith floating above Jupiter. Russian cosmonauts offer Floyd the chance for closure when they invite him to join their mission to rendezvous with Discovery and right its orbital path before it collides with Jupiter's moon Io. But the political climate makes a space collaboration between the U.S. and the Soviet Union a dicey proposition. See, the Cold War is still being fought in this vision of the future, and the president and the premier are embroiled in an escalating conflict in Central America. But the White House eventually does give its okay, and four months later, Floyd, engineer Walter Kurnow, played by John Lithgow, and HAL creator Dr. Chandra, played by Bob Balaban, are all in hypersleep aboard a commie spaceship headed for Jupiter. As it was in the Kubrick movie, the events in 2010 feel very episodic. First, Floyd catches a glimpse of an organic life moving on the surface of icy moon Europa. Then he has a close encounter with a Russian babe during a dangerous braking procedure. Later, stubborn Captain Tanya Kerbuk, played by Helen Mirren, sends a fellow comrade to his death by ordering a close inspection of the orbiting monolith. But unlike The Last Odyssey, we know exactly how characters feel and think because Floyd is always yammering on and on about their motivations in long-winded letters to his wife and son back home. Who we're still not sure about is Hal. The supercomputer has been turned back on and claims to have no memory of his psychotic break. Dr. Chandra ultimately concludes that the White House should be held responsible for the murders in 2001 because they ordered Hal to withhold the true purpose of the Discovery mission from Dave and Frank. 
And everyone knows that lying leads to paranoia and snipped oxygen hoses. Talk to the pod bay door, Dave. It's not my fault. I killed you. Floyd's not buying it either. And so he has a kill switch installed in Hal's circuitry, which allows him to take the AI out with his pocket calculator should another mutiny occur. Nuclear war appears imminent on Earth 31 days before the international crew is scheduled to return. The U.S. president demands the Americans segregate from the cosmonauts and cease any further Russian access to the discovery. But Floyd disobeys that order when he's visited by the ghost of Dave Bowman, the original space baby. Dave announces, quote, something wonderful is about to happen. Uh, so get the hell out of here in two days or suffer the consequences. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? And skeptical Kerbic is convinced to follow Floyd's new escape plan only when the monolith disappears from orbit and is found reappearing in multitudes on the black spot of Jupiter's surface. Hal redeems himself by complying with Chandra's new launch orders, which doom the supercomputer and Discovery, but enable the humans to escape the blast radius of Jupiter in another ship. Floyd marvels that the giant planet has been transformed into a brand new star and hopes a second sun can then thaw Earth's Cold War. Hal's final transmission, dictated by Dave, warns humans to stay away from the newly green surface of Europa. And apparently we did because credits roll and we still don't have a third Odyssey film. Definitely a lot to talk about here. I didn't realize until your plot summary, Roy Scheider, he's supposed to be the same guy from the last movie, the one who flew the Pan Am flight and did the briefing. Yes, I know. Weird. I didn't realize that either until I revisited this movie. It, it, it wouldn't occur to you. Roy Scheider looks nothing like the actor <laughs> from that one. And as you mentioned before, that's always the segment people tend to forget about. That whole trip to the moon. We remember the classical music. We remember the spinning space station. I don't remember the suit that walked up to the monolith. He didn't impress anyone as a character. But that's who this guy is. He's the star of the Odyssey series. And he will continue to be in the other Odyssey books. Isn't there one that takes place a thousand years later? Uh, we'll get there. Yes. You follow <laughs> me on books and nachos. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. F Floyd has traded in some bush babies for some pet dolphins in this film. <laughs> Here's my question right off. We get a recap of 2001 as a transmission. You know, we get this, my God, it's full of stars, which was never spoken in that first film. I was wondering about that because I talked about it. I said I knew it from the book. It, that's what it's from is the book. It never appeared in the movie, but here's my confusion. I thought the whole deal was that Hal sabotaged that antenna for communications. That was never fixed, right? Like, how was all this sent back? <laughs> or do we not ask that question? It never occurred to me, but you're absolutely right. The thing that broke and that was discontinued. Now, Dave did put it back. We do know he was doing some tinkering before he got in that pod and flew into the Stargate. So perhaps he turned it back on. He would have had the knowledge to be able to do that. I don't know why he would have taken the time to call home and say, hey, I'm dead. But uh, maybe he did. Maybe. That's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, I just wonder because Hal is dead at that moment. But they know that researchers have died, that Frank is dead. They just know a lot from what <laughs> I thought would not be possible to get that kind of information. But perhaps we move on. We move on another nine years. 
yeah, perhaps it would be better if Floyd had more questions. This opening montage is more to catch the audience up that has vague hippie flashback memories of the first. They were all on acid when they watched it. They don't remember. Exactly. They needed to be told what they saw way back in the day. And, And again, I think it just sets the tone for this movie. This movie is going to yammer on and on and on. It's going to make sure you understand at every given moment what is going on. It is not going to make the quote unquote mistakes of the first Kubrick work. No, it's going to make new mistakes. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah, I do love the way that they kind of tell us about 2001. I mean, again, 1984 VCRs were out there, but I guess you couldn't just assume everyone was going to watch the first movie before seeing the sequel. But I've never seen it done in this way before, where it's like, honestly, it felt like promotional shots for the film versus actual footage. Why not roll the footage? Why go... S- Still image. It, it has the benefit of not been done in anything I've seen before, but it was a little off-putting to see basically like having a picture book of 2001 as my prologue. I would say this. If we did see moving footage of the way Kubrick envisioned life in 2001, we'd want to know what the hell happened that made us go so <laughs> retro to the 80s nine years later. Because there is nothing about Peter Heim's vision that makes me feel like it is a continuation of the aesthetics. I mean, look at Earth. We never did see Earth other than in caveman times in the first film. But there's everything that we witness here. It's straight up 1984. It doesn't even look kind of sci-fi futuristic except for the occasional car. I thought the dolphins were supposed to be like the pets of the future. That's the only futuristic <laughs> thing that I really noticed. What, what's funny is I primarily know Roy Scheider from Sequest DSV, where he had a smart dolphin. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe why he got the gig, this movie, I don't know. But his wife's a marine biologist. That's more clear in the novel. And Arthur C. Clarke is a big advocate for marine life. He's written quite extensively about it. He's not just a space guy. So I think they work that in because it, it just sort of speaks to something else that he knows about but come on it was the 80s we loved dolphins there was <laughs> splash cocoon jaws 3d the big blue it was a good time to be a dolphin in 1984 yeah we'd save the whales two years later in the voyage home mm-hmm. and we were really trying to get rid of those tuna nets for them too i mean yeah <laughs> yeah but I think this house is cool, but it's very 80s. I, I got to say, I would have loved the idea that dolphins could have swimmed up to my dining room table as a kid. I would totally have been on Christopher's side in this house. It wouldn't have even bothered me that my dad was going to fly away in space for years. I would have just been so excited to have the dolphins. I love, in retrospect, what people in the 80s thought 2010 would be like. You know, that there's a computer in the kitchen? Yes, you really had that. That it had this giant keyboard and you had to have an entire cabinet just to hold the television it displayed on? Not so much. (laughs) you, You put that computer in your pocket now. Yeah, later he's at the beach and he's like typing on some laptop or something. I think that was a something they got closer to right, but what the hell was that? <laughs> it was a word processor with a flip-up LCD screen. <laughs> I it was probably a real prop from that time. The thought of it was probably mind-boggling to the average American who still thought computers were giant devices with reel-to-reels, but yeah, in 2010, you if you looked at somebody on the beach like that, it would be like, "Wow, pathetic. Where where did the antique come from?" I'm judging you with my eyes, yes. (laughs) Does it even run DOS? (laughs) But, you know, in all of the 80s-ness of what we're seeing here, none is more glaringly apparent than the fact that this whole tension, the whole crux of this story is about 
the Soviet Union and America teaming up in space in 2010. Boy, did they get that wrong. I mean, he might have gotten the science right about Jupiter. Arthur C. Clarke said the reason he even wrote 2010 was that what Voyager, the satellite, discovered in 1979 led him to believe there was more to say about Jupiter. He might have gotten that science right, but, I mean, the Cold War, it was over three years after this movie. I mean, there's no way that there's a Soviet Union cosmonaut space program. Though in 2014, yeah. we are going back to that Cold War, it seems like. Yeah, this could be 2020 and far more realistic. <laughs> well, yes, it, it, you're right. It, the Russians still are, but the communists, the, the Soviet Union, as, as it was understood as a country, that conflict is long dead. And so it's just funny to me. I can't conceive that this is nine years after Kubrick's vision. It just makes no sense to me. It, I, the whole movie, I'm just thinking, okay, we're in 1985. But that's what the 80s did. I mean, we've talked on so many podcasts about the nuclear fears of us growing up in the late 70s and early 80s and really thinking that that's how we would die. We would die when our species died in complete armageddon of nuclear war and so looking at this as the time from which it came out it makes perfect sense that this would be a future conflict i mean around the same time we had red dawn so many movies about russian american conflict and coming from arthur c clark again and he had a bit of a hand in star trek going for an optimistic future that he would show a future in which americans and russians can work together in space the whole crux of this movie is the whole we're not so different after all i mean they say it out loud we're not at war our governments are this isn't Arthur C. Clarke. This is Peter Himes. Peter Himes is the sole credit on the screenplay. He collaborated with Arthur C. Clarke. They wrote lots of emails back and forth about what he was doing to his novel. But if you read that novel, it is not about the Russians and the Americans about to get a nuclear war. The conflict is very different. As 80 as this feels, I do like this conflict. I do like this beginning, this beginning that turned me off when I was a, I don't know, eight or nine year old child and didn't want to sit around and watch people talk. I like this. I like that the Russians are the ones in power here. I think that would be somewhat troubling to a 1984 audience that it's not the Americans that are going to get back to the discovery, get back to Jupiter, check the monolith out. It's the Russians. They've stolen all our secrets and they're they're about to take off, but they want us to join them. It's how the whole space race got funded. It was we have to beat the Russians to whatever, the moon, the first orbit, everything. It, it I do like that just as a historical conceit that, yes, this is our ship and they're going to get it to it first. I don't know why we're not prepared nine years later to go. They have some jazz that they talk here about we're building Discovery 2 and it's behind plans. But, yes, the point of the story is the Russians are ready. We're not. And if we want to have any say about what they do to our ship – we got to send Roy and a couple other dudes. And again, looking at it at the time, the fact that they were hearkening back to the space race, something that would be pretty passe by that point, but saying that it was still at that place in 2010 and that the Russians were going to beat us. I'm drawn into this movie. I'm still wondering, where's Galactus, baby? I mean, <laughs> I, I wonder that when the end credits roll, but the, many times I'm like, I figured the movie would start with Galactus, baby, but I'm... 
interested in what they're giving me. I'm liking this. I like Roy Scheider. Again, I was happy to see familiar actors here. So I'm curious what they're going to find on the Discovery. I'm very curious how this will all play out. And I don't expect the baby to ever show up again, how wrong I am. <laughs> but I did not expect that here. But yeah, this has all those tropes of a sequel. Like, now you're going to learn more about Hal. We're going to get Chandra, Dr. Chandra on this ship who created Hal. And now he's hanging out with Sal, the female Hal. And will I dream? Like, yeah, I, I don't know if you have to go with all the ambiguity that Kubrick brings with his film. But when you got computers asking if they dream. Uh, yes, of electric sheep, right? <laughs> Yes, that's a different, we've already done that film. <laughs> yeah, Chandra is a bit of a change. He's a, an Indian character. The, the name Chandra would, that's would not- That's what I was imply, expecting. <laughs> yeah, it would not imply this. I'm not really sure what he gets out of having Sal here. It's, it's a female version of Hal. It's got a blue light instead of a red light, and it's voiced by uh, Candace Bergen in disguise, Murphy Brown. But, uh, you know, he says that for all of his tinkering with Sal, he still cannot figure out what went wrong with Hal. This is the movie that's going to answer that. I think that that is the real mystery that they can solve and answer for me that I'm going to enjoy. The monolith, I hope it remains mysterious. I don't want to know what that is. Again, I want to point out, to me, watching that original Kubrick movie, I didn't even take it as an object. I took it as a literal god. I saw it literally as God communicating with us as a metaphor. And so the idea that they're going to try to explain that, I don't want to know what the monolith is. I don't want to know what it's doing. But I definitely want to find out what went wrong with Hal. And I saw it as communication from aliens. I wanted to know what it is. I wanted to know what it was doing. So I wanted exactly the opposite out of this movie. Yeah, and my approach was, again, I am satisfied with 2001. If this film never came along, I would be fine. I love the ambiguity. I love the mystery. I love all the discussion you could have from that film but i accept this is a film that's going to give us answers and okay i'll go along with it i don't have to like the answers i don't have to believe them i like 2001 as a standalone but here in this alternate universe where you follow up with a sequel to that film okay i'm willing to go along with it because i don't accept it as a sequel really at all it's just it's another film that's in that continuity but it's it's its own thing to me. Yeah, it feels like a sequel to Outland. It does not feel like a sequel to 2001, and I think that helps me. I'm less judgmental because I, if this were ponderous, if he didn't have voiceover, if he didn't have characters talking, 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 if it weren't so 80s, if they really tried to keep that psychedelic vibe, I think it would have been much harder to get through this movie. And I'm looking at this very much as a sequel to the story of 2001, a story I had problems with, and... I was surprised how much. I didn't realize that Dr. Floyd was the same character, but really, I mean, again, to talk about expectations coming into this movie, I thought it was going to be a whole new group of people on Earth. I mean, nine years have passed. Why would any of those same people be alive? Kind of my mindset. So... <laughs> I thought it would be totally new humans dealing with the next stage of the alien monolith. So when they start bringing up Hal, I'm like, they're bringing back Hal? And when they start showing pictures of Bowman, I'm like, wow, they're going to talk about the people from the last film? Completely didn't expect it. I expected, because the style is so different right out of the gate, that... It would be a continuation of the alien story. I never expected a continuation of the human or computer stories. Well, I, I think then your expectations are, are off course. I think people remember how the best. 
out of everything that 2001 offered, I don't think people got what the black box was, but everyone knows Hal. Everyone loved watching Hal face off with Dave and the pod bay doors. I just can't imagine a sequel to Odyssey without Hal. It just it's not conceivable. That's what I thought Sal was, though. I didn't think you'd go back <laughs> to Hal. I thought you'd just have Sal. Yeah, well, maybe. Now, we talked about what a great transition it was to go from ape tossing a bone in the air to nuclear satellite hovering above us. There's huge jump cuts in this movie, too, but I feel like they're less artistic. We have 20 minutes of Roy Scheider doing sit-ups and, and running next to go-karts, and then all of a sudden, he's at Jupiter, waking up from hypersleep, and we're in the movie. Like It's very jarring, but all of a sudden, they almost could have started right here, right? Do we really need to set up Caroline and Christopher, other than the fact that he's going to keep writing letters to them and keep yammering on and on to them about what he's discovering? Yeah, they set up all this, yeah, these family relationships that don't really go anywhere. I thought he had a daughter. Wasn't he talking to his daughter about the Bush baby in that last one? Now he's got a son? Second marriage. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah, he drops that she's 17 now and still Okay. Yeah, that wife is dead, and he remarried the marine biologist, had a new kid, and... Forgot about his daughter. (laughs) Got plastic surgery, looks totally different. (laughs) He was never a good dad. I mean, we saw that in the last movie. It's, It's not surprising that he would leave Christopher and Caroline behind. Now, in the book, they divorce over it, and there's no letters back home. She just says, I've had enough. I'm not going to wait for you. And that's the source of tension. They just decided to leave out of this. It would have been very 80s, Kramer versus Kramer, but they leave the divorce storyline out of this so that they can focus more of the tensions between Russian and American. He wakes up, and he's finding that Helen Mirren and all the other Russian stereotypes do not want to share what they know. Yeah, we're supposed to be scientists. They know there's something on Europa, and they don't want to tell them what they found. It's weird. We thought we are going to go find a monolith, and now we're talking about alien life on a moon of Jupiter. It, it is somewhat jarring. Like, I don't know where this film is going to go. And I thought the alien life gave the monolith. I, I'm I, That seems contiguous to me. It just takes a while to get past this we-have-to-work-together bit. I'm glad they don't prolong that too much. But, I mean, I guess I didn't realize at this point that really was the thrust of the film. The thrust of the film is not the year we make contact with aliens. It's the year we make contact between communists and capitalists. Yes, the year we give peace a chance. And, again, that's the movie version of this. This whole stuff on Europa, much more in detail, they wouldn't have been able to do it the way it's in the book. We actually see that creature that's moving around on the surface, and uh, Chinese astronauts have landed on there, and we see a a trauma happen to them. Now they could do it. If they had made the movie 2010 in 2010, this would have been really exciting stuff. As it is... It feels like an afterthought. They wake him up. They say, we think we see something. They try to take a closer look with a probe. It's shot down and ah, moving on. So so you're saying there's like a creature crawling? Because they say there's chlorophyll. Isn't that just like yes. moss or something? It is m- like living moss. It's uh, uh, almost like Cthulhu or something. There's some <laughs> kind of mossy entity that's drawn to light sources. And so what happens is a spaceship lands there and it just starts growing tendrils and crushes them. And, uh, you know. Go listen to the books and nachos. But yeah, a whole subplot has been dropped here on Europa. It makes it seem very more mysterious. I'm fine with mysterious, but we don't really come back to Europa until the very last seconds of the film. They choose not to make this a storyline, subplot, or main plot in this 2010 movie. I'm wondering if they should have cut it. 
If they'd cut it entirely, then at the end when they said Europa, I really would have been confused. I mean, here it tells us there's something there that they don't want us to see. I got they didn't want us to see it when they shot out, when they basically punted the probe. Yeah, you know, I really was expecting a more pessimistic ending. Like, you humans, re, re, as soon as we gave you technology, inspired you to pick up a bone, you started killing each other. Now, even as you're discovering new life, you're going to continue killing each other. I, I really thought the warning was going to be weird space gods are going to start over with Europa because we totally screwed you guys up. But no, th- that's not how this film ends up, ends up going. It's not the focus of this film. It is what they're saying. We don't know why, but the monolith is preoccupied with creating a whole new alien life on Europa. It's made of chlorophyll, and it's crawling around there. And if we try to land on it, if we try to take a look, we're going to get shot down. That's all that I take away from this. So it's a mystery, I guess, that can be solved in the later novels. But for this story, no. Again, the conflict is about... East versus West. And we get the first coming together when Roy Scheider is in bed waiting to see if their untested theory of how to break this. I, I don't understand any of this, but they. You could, how can you not understand it? There's so much voiceover. You know, people sometimes damn this film because it gives too much information. I don't know. When we get into how, when you get into the monolith, fine, whatever. The too much information is all this voiceover. When he goes into detail about how they're, I thought they were like slingshotting around Jupiter so they'd have enough momentum to get back to Earth when they were done with their mission. I didn't realize it was breaking. I'm like, well, just wait two years and watch the voyage home. Then you'll understand it. How did Discovery stop? I assume that it was going to get back with the fuel that it had. I, I don't know why we needed balloons, but whatever. Hey, this is Russian space station. <laughs> In Russia, we have only balloons. In Mother Russia, planet, stop you. <laughs> You're right. They're all, they suck. We forget this. Americans have all the coolest shit. Uh, Russians are stupid and use balloons in space. The thing that bothered me about this is I didn't understand during this voiceover that what they were about to do was going to be a, quote, action slash suspense sequence. I mean, he's talking about, well, we're doing the slingshot maneuver. Great theory. But, I mean, if they had shown us some planning sessions, and God help me, the movie I went back to, and I I go back to it a lot, I'd give it a green arrow, but we'll never review it, is Armageddon. Because in you, Armageddon... You promise? I, I promise. <laughs> I always feared that one day I'd have to watch it. I've never seen it. In Armageddon, before they take off towards the asteroid, they have Billy Bob Thornton telling Bruce Willis and Steve Buscemi about this crazy dangerous maneuver they're going to have to do. And Steve Buscemi calls out, yeah, that seems really dangerous and scary. So we have it set up. So when they do it a half hour later, we go, oh yeah, this is the crazy scary thing. Here, we have like 30 seconds of it. If we'd had Roy Scheider going, are these Russians nuts? What are we doing? Then I'd understand why like this hottie Russian chick is coming to snuggle with them. No, that's how you know it's dangerous is that it gets the Russians to snuggle up with the Americans. Exactly. That's the first moment I realized this is dangerous. I'm like, is she the call girl? Oh, she's scared. I'm confused because this was not properly set up as a danger. 
Yeah, and notice he doesn't say anything to Caroline about this chick. He's like, ah, I'm leaving this out. The- he copped a feel while they were going around Jupiter. Nothing to report there. Moving on. Again, I feel this movie is very episodic. It starts and, and stops on points. It feels very much like a collection of Arthur C. Clarke short stories that are strung together. It does not feel like a character learning, growing, changing, going through a typical narrative arc. Even though this movie is much more narrative-driven, I still feel like there's a clumsiness to the telling that makes it not confusing. We understand what's going on, but why we focus on the individual things we do is a bit of a mystery. I I feel like if this is about Hal and the monolith, let's get to discovery. Let's turn on Hal. Yeah, you say clumsy. The word I would use is choppy. I never get a flow from the beginning to the end of this movie. I'm always feeling a little bit confused as to what I'm supposed to care about at this moment and how it affects an overarching storyline. It does in the end, but it's just told in a really weird way that does feel more like a series of vignettes. It's almost like this would be like a webisode series these days, that they'd put out each little webisode and then you could watch them all like on Netflix and see the overarching theme. Well, Stuart, you said with Kubrick that he was obsessed with accuracy, that they had NASA advisors and, you know, here, I, I don't know how many NASA advisors were on the set of this movie. But I, I do feel like this, you know, just like that film, and Arnie, I think you called it out, you, we got all this floating around in space and space stewardess picking up a pen that's floating around. That that does have those moments. That feels much more poetic. Here, it, it's not done with that level of, I'm going to say, skill and art. And so, yeah, it does feel more episodic and more choppy. Yeah, it feels like things are being cut out and left out. But to your point, Jacob, you ask how much accuracy is here? We're looking at Jupiter. This is one of the first computer-generated images ever put in a film, and it's all pulled from NASA data. Everything that Voyager recorded about Jupiter was then put into a computer and has been rendered on the screen. When we're looking at that, that's almost as good as looking into a telescope. When we finally get to the spinning discovery, we're seeing some science here. I thought that looked good, but overall, I have to feel like there wasn't the NASA accuracy here. I immediately noticed there's sounds in the space shots now where we talked about how there wasn't in 2001. But also, I feel there was a need to keep up with the Lucases or the Indiana Joneses here and really up the special effects, and they just don't do it as well. When we see the Russian ship in space, the mat lines are really just distorting the stars around it. When they have more than two to three layers, the fact that everything turns a grayish hue, I think they did a great job on the models, but Kubrick's film could come out today and hold up for the visual work, and this looks like a sci-fi movie from the 80s. And let me just point out, Kubrick had $10 million, 1968, where 16 years later they have triple that budget, and it isn't half the film. It isn't half the visual splendor. It's proof that money does not translate into grandeur. You need to have an artist at the helm of this. And Peter Himes, he's a technician. He is not an artist, and that's apparent. The movie 2010 screams craftsmen, workmen, wrote generic but i always have really liked this sequence you said this was a universal ride jacob i'd love to have taken it because the moment where john lithgow is going to take his spacewalk and try to stabilize the discovery from its spinning orbit i think it's fantastic even though it's phony 
I still think that there is something scary about floating weightless in space here. They capture that same terror I had looking at Frank Poole getting snipped and floating off here when John Lithgow is making his way with the cosmonaut. Yeah, where Frank and Dave were so calm and cool and collected, they would never flip out like this. Even when they're afraid of Hal, they're they're staying composed. I do like Lithgow's performance here because it does add that tension. He's what? He's the engineer. He created the discovery, so he knows how to turn it back on. So, but he he's not a space guy. He's not an astronaut. So I do like this. That is, there is tension. I mean, they drop a line. Oh, we have to do this in 15 minutes because of radiation. That doesn't do anything for me. But Lithgow's performance and just his breathing and how they're trying to calm him down. Yeah, it's a exciting scene. You're, you're wondering what's going to happen. Is he going to make it to the discovery? Yeah, I like that as well. I like John Lithgow in general. I wasn't expecting to see him here. I wasn't expecting to see him in a, this role, but he really works for me. And I like that they have people who aren't astronauts in space to help drive home the wonder of space. That's because you like Armageddon. Well, yes, I did get a bit of an Armageddon feel. You take the oil drillers and you put them in space and they freak out. I was also thinking about Armageddon because in Armageddon, <laughs> the fat guy gets kicked off into space and is never found again. And I'm thinking about gravity, how that happened to Clooney, spoiler alert. And so I'm really worried that that's going to happen to Lithgow or somebody here. I started feeling that kind of claustrophobic feeling Stuart described in 2001. Yeah, and you get that when they finally even reach the ship and it's spinning every time that that revolution is closer to Io they're feeling that weight crush on them it's it's just great tension here I wish the specs were better of course but I still think that this is the highlight of the whole movie here it's the one sequence I would hold up and say they did a great job. Which is probably why they made it an attraction at Universal. But what would that be? You just free fall? <laughs> no, well, they were demonstrating how they did the special effects. So they'd pick two people from the audience to put on the spacesuits and film it and then show it with the green screen and all that. So not everyone got to do it. You had to be picked from the audience. Yeah, that's not as fun as what I visioned. I was thinking you'd have be in some kind of free fall with a little air gun that could change your direction. And lest we make the Americans look like queasy cowards, they they have Maxim also get a little sick. He's, he goes inside the ship and does something I would never dare yeah. do. He flips open his lid to see if there's oxygen. Okay, uh, you go. <laughs> I like that they're like, he's not turning blue yet. <laughs> Yeah, it's extremely cold. They're they're in the middle of space, so there's like no temperature there. It's but I guess I, they turned the heat up. He makes a joke that it's the typical Russian winter. I thought that was a funny way of laughing it off, but it really doesn't explain it. And then he smells something and totally freaks out. Turns out it's dead meat or something from the kitchen. I thought all of that stuff was like paste. I didn't think there was real meat in any of that stuff. I didn't think it would rot. They did get me, though. I'm like, oh, yeah, there's all those dead bodies that are rotting. But no, those were all ejected. But they did catch me off guard with that. But yeah, they try to play it off as it's, I don't know, they're hamburgers in the kitchen. And so there are no people to discover. But of course, it's time for Hal. And again, I would say for me, this is the main mystery of the movie. It's Chandra's time to show why he's here. And I'm expecting to understand really through him tinkering and, and pushing in those glass rectangles why Hal did what he did. I think that this is the stuff that I want to see. And here I had another 80s flashback because as he's pushing the bricks in, he's typing to make Hal be able to speak again. And 
Do either of you remember, I know at our Chuck E. Cheese we had one, an arcade game, there was never a line for this one, it was a computer, you'd put in a quarter and you could type three sentences of like six words or less and it would speak them, and it, you could hear a computer talk. No, I would not spend a quarter on that when I could be playing Star Wars or something. Yeah, oh, I would have dug that. I, I remember when they got Coke machines to talk, I would have thought that was totally awesome. Yeah, well, the way Hal speaks the very first time here was that computer. It could never say anything right. It had, like, standard things that was trying to sound together, consonants and things. Typing in the name Arnie would really mess it up. But <laughs> Oh, yeah, they, they cannot say Stuart. Nobody can say Stuart. I can't tell you how many times they get that wrong. But Yeah, but that's what that reminded me of, as they're changing it from what I think was a real computerized voice to then an auto-tuned actor to a regular actor. That's the same actor who did Hal before, right? It sounds the same. Yeah, they actually got Douglas Raines back. And Douglas Rain did one day back in 1966 or 67. I mean, a long time ago, nearly 20 years have passed. Uh, they got lucky he was still alive and still sounded exactly like he did back then. It's seamless. And I want to compliment, too, even though they don't have as much money, they did a pretty good job of recreating those sets. Again, they weren't working off the same blueprints. They didn't get to reuse props and stuff. They had to build all of that again. And I think the ship, more or less, I can spot some differences. There's definitely some details that they get wrong. But more or less, I believe that we're in the exact same ship we were last time. Yeah, watching these back-to-back, you notice that, but the first time I watched this, it had been a year or two since I watched 2001, and it seemed seamless to me. I didn't notice a whole lot of difference. I think what we're saying is do not watch this one directly after 2001. (laughs) Or maybe we'll be saying don't watch it at all. We'll have to get to that at the end. But I am disappointed. I guess what I've been leading up to is what I thought this movie was going to be about. We don't get a lot of back and forth between Hal and Chandra. I don't feel like when he finally concludes his theory as to why Hal went crazy, it comes from any kind of detective work. We don't see him uncovering anything. He has his little moment pushing in the bricks, and then he's gone from the story until he's pointing a finger at at Scheider. You know what I was expecting and never happened? And... I was a little disappointed it didn't. I thought Chandra was going to be the Hal of this movie. There would be a human component who goes homicidal or goes rogue and ends up killing one or more of the crew members. Because at the very beginning, they're talking about bringing Chandra along on this mission, and they're like, can you trust him? And Scheider says, Chandra is Hal. And so I'm thinking Chandra programmed Hal in his own mental image, and Chandra is also very Machiavellian for the mission, and that he would become the bad guy here, or maybe he and Hal would team up. (laughs) I never got that off of Chandra. He always seemed like he was more about the science, that he cared about Hal as a father cares about their child. Uh, That's how he came off to me. I did like the tension where he was protective of Hal, so I could see, yeah, maybe they would I don't know, team up. I don't know if that's the right word, but he would be the defender of Hal. He would be his advocate that, you know, if Hal was going to make a bad decision in this film, he'd be the one helping to cover it up. Uh, Would he kill a human to protect Hal? Yeah, I like what you're going with, Arnie. It's not in the book. It's it's not even a thought that I had. But it's this movie could use some more tension in the second half. That would have been a, a good way of escalating this. Now that Chandra is indignant that he believes that some of this crew here is responsible for his baby failing and publicly failing to the point that it's tarnished his name, 
what is he going to do out of that? It would have been a stretch probably to say he would have started killing people. But yeah, I would have liked to have seen him show that anger in a way that made him adversarial. I think that would have been something to do here. Instead, we, we just take the eye off the ball, as we do so many times here. Once something starts to become interesting, oh, let's go look at the monolith. And we get a return to that giant floating thing. It's clear to me in this viewing that it is much larger than what was found in the moon or what appeared to the ape men. And that's what I had presumed on the first viewing based upon, you know, seeing it in relation to the discovery. But given that perspective is everything, it could have been smaller. But yeah, they went with what I had taken the first one to be. And this is a, really a moment to reveal the character of the captain. We haven't discussed, but this is a female captain leading this mission. Helen Mirren, returning to us after last summer's Red Series. <laughs> Not quite what I would have expected her past to be, given that before Red, I primarily knew her for playing a queen. Yes, yeah, I agree. She's made her bank in PBS mysteries and uh, royalty pictures. But yeah, it was kind of fun to see her play Russian. I, I would have liked to have her be more of a character here. Roy Scheider, he gets a little on my nerves because he's always going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And because he's just a lot of angst without a lot to do, it would have been nice to have his relationship expanded more with Kerbic. By the way, did you notice her name? Yes. Tanya Kerbick sounds a little bit like Stanley Kubrick. Ah, did not catch that. Yeah, I think that the adversarial relationship between <laughs> the Russians and the Americans might have also reflected the way Clark felt about Kubrick. Kubrick did keep Arthur Clark largely off the set of 2001, made sure that his book didn't get published before the movie came out. It cost him a lot of money initially. So I, I think this is Arthur C. Clarke's way of getting a little dig in here. And of course, later, when we get back to Earth and we see a Time magazine cover, the Russian premier and the U.S. president are also Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. But Kerbick sends a man to his death. He's the one guy that we liked, I think, uh, from the cosmonauts, the one with personality, the one that lifted his lid and smelled the meat. Yeah, dead. Because he's willing to do crazy things like that, I guess she feels like he's ready to get in the pod and drive right up to the surface of that giant monolith. Yeah, Maxim, does he die or does he have the same fate as Dave? Is he pulled into the monolith and sees that it's full of stars? Is he a baby floating somewhere? It's not the same effect. It tends to look like the exact same thing that happened on Europa when they sent the probe down to take a look and it was shot and it was like, it was sent like past Saturn. I think he's a, a tiny bits of debris that are you know, sailing off to Pluto. I don't think the monolith likes Russians. I think <laughs> Dave got to go and he didn't. And I'm not I'm, sure why the preference, but no, he's not a star baby. I was wondering if he'd be floating in space per my earlier fear, but then it looked like he was going right at a planet. I think he became a meteor. Yeah, they use that same effect as that energy ball that we see on Europa. So I did assume he died, but yeah, why? Why can't he become a space baby too? I don't like this. It wasn't in the book. I don't see the monolith as being a killer. That does, does not make any sense why it would turn into a weapon. I mean, like it starts like pulling stars together and just like zaps like a laser. That's that's not my conception of this device at all. Yeah, my thoughts were always that those who were brave enough to approach the monolith were blessed with knowledge. The right. eight get tools the one on the moon it we find out there's one in jupiter and we create new technology to get there dave becomes the star baby like that was always my perception of this monolith and all of a sudden yeah now it's shooting laser beams out killing people 
Yeah, this actually pissed me off because what we had talked about in 2001 is the monolith was always there at a moment of human advancement. If we look at when it was there in the primitive times, it was when Beast became man. When you come to modern times, it's when Dave became Star Baby. So I think that we're supposed to be seeing something here. When it just becomes this weapon, it's, first of all, a little bipolar. It's like, do you love us or want to kill us? And second of all, unless the advancement it's fostering is peace between Russia and the U.S., none of that's coming to bear here in this movie. Right. We still don't quite understand the motives. I presume that the monolith has given up on humanity. We've reached it. We got as far as it led us in the last movie, and now it's concerned with creating a new life for a new purpose. That's what it's sheltering, that Europa stuff. I would think it would be very indifferent to us. There's nothing we can do to the monolith. We could nuke it. It's mentioned in the beginning. Shider's like, we tried everything, including a nuke on this thing. Nothing can hurt it, so I don't know why it feels like it has to hurt us. Maybe we're too late. I mean, didn't they say that it was buried on the moon like four million years ago? Maybe by the time we got there, it's like, screw you, I've already started a new project on Europa. <laughs> yeah, it does seem we are trying to take these two into continuity with each other and be like, okay, so they buried a monolith on the moon waiting for a civilization to dig it up so we could send them to Jupiter only to say, hey, don't get next to Europa. That's for us. Like, yeah, that seems like a really weird plan for space aliens or space god or whoever. And keep in mind, the continuity problems are inherent even in the original. Arthur C. Clarke worked off an incomplete screenplay and came to different conclusions than Kubrick ultimately did in the editing room. Remember, in Arthur C. Clarke's book, all of this is taking place in Saturn. Well, in order to write the sequel, he changed it back to Jupiter. So even the books don't have continuity. I think sometimes they're borrowing from the previous movie. Sometimes they're borrowing from Clarke's version on the page. It's not very consistent. This feels to me quite a bit more like a sequel to that book you described, Stuart, than a sequel to Kubrick's film. Down to the fact that IMDb Trivia pointed out Chandra's the wrong name. <laughs> yeah, but I still feel like ultimately, much like Hannibal had to do after Silence of the Lambs, it's bowing to the things we understood about 2001. I don't feel like they do anything to contradict that 2001 movie other than yeah some name changes or what have you ultimately i feel like they're trying to be kubrick i mean they're trying to follow that kubrick world but through the prose and through the pontification of arthur c Clarke. but then we we see the russian blown out i don't know past saturn and then we jump back to earth i guess it's the next webisode of the series <laughs> I wasn't prepared for this. I really didn't think Dave was coming back. Now, if they were going to do what they did in the original book, remember that space baby, you kept wondering what they were going to do. You thought they were going to start with a giant baby staring down at Earth. If they had done what they did in the book, he would blow up all of our nuclear satellites and we would be rendered powerless by our new evolutionary elder. I do not think they could have told a story starting at that point. I think they had to make Dave more humble, that he's become this kind of phantom that sort of remembers how he used to look like and can pop back to say goodbye to loved ones. Now, I don't know why he has a wife. And comb he his grandma's hair? <laughs> yes. That's creepy. 
He wasn't married. That was the whole reason he got the mission was because he had no attachments on Earth. But the mother makes sense. And uh, yeah, it is a little creepy. Uh, it's a little poltergeist the way that, that the, the comb is just yeah doing her hair there. But I like the idea that Dave is like the monolith, become sort of scary at this point, that he's got a horrific vibe. When he's showing up and saying something wonderful is coming, I don't believe him. It doesn't <laughs> feel wonderful at all. It feels like something bad is about to go down. Yeah, well, I was just thinking about Mangler 3. Good things will come. I wasn't sure if they got the actor back, because he at first only appears like, in, to use in mid-80s reference, Max Headroom. He's on TV. And so I'm like, are they just using scenes from the last one and putting them on a TV? I was surprised, A, they got the actor back, and B, he looks about the same. Yeah, how has he not aged in all these years? Like, I looked closely. Uh, I guess they didn't have that kind of technology, like in Forrest Gump, where you could have a modern actor interacting with JFK or something. But I really thought they were using some kind of technology like that. No, he's very well preserved, and the fact that he's aged a little bit is totally okay because he was aged at the end of the first movie, so he just kind of does look like he did when he had the makeup effects on, and they play with it. Of course, sometimes he's the old man dying in bed, sometimes he's the space baby, sometimes he's his young self in the red suit. They never allow you to, to rest too long on on one image of Dave. He's all the Daves at once. I don't know if this is the right choice. Yeah, he appears to Floyd to tell Floyd that they got to get out of there. They can't wait around for whatever their plan was to blast off with Discovery and with the Russian space shuttle. And so, yeah, he does. He changes to all those different forms that we see at the end of 2001. That felt like you're trying to tie it too close to that one. I feel this film works better the further away you move from that original one i didn't know if that space baby was dave or if the space baby was the alien if david turned into an alien you had to give me some space baby god damn it so i'm glad <laughs> they gave me some space baby even if this is really unfulfilling that now he's all daves at once and that crazy baby i mean he had some weird freaking eyes I expected him to be some kind of alien that is just fetal form Dave. It's a disappointing answer, but I guess any answer is going to be disappointing about Big Space Baby. <laughs> Isn't it a little rude, too? I mean, you've had how many millions of years to do something on Jupiter? And, okay, we just got there to the ship, and you're like, nope, you got to get out of here right now. Two days. I'm not going to wait another second to transform Jupiter into a star. He got bored. I told you. We took too freaking long. Yeah. I don't <laughs> he doesn't like a us anymore. God does not like human beings. There is a new favorite in town. It's something going on in Europa. Yeah, I don't. It's man thing down in Europa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. But I'd like this as tension. And I actually think this is the one time where the tension between Russian and American also works. Not in the novel, but the whole concept that we're about to go to nuclear war really does make it feel like these astronauts really are between a rock and a hard place. I feel for them that they're told to separate and that the Americans are supposed to get back in the discovery, that they're not allowed back on the ship that took them there, and how they're going to do this in two days before something wonderful <laughs> hurts them. I think I, this is a good lead-in to the Act 3. I'm, I'm excited to see the potential of where this is all headed. I don't know if I buy this tension because, like, okay, I get it. Our governments are fighting down on Earth, but this means, like, people might die, like, up here. We're just trying to find out about this monolith. Like, it seems weird that, like, the president's like, Floyd, you get on Discovery right now or I'm going to spank you. Like, really, you don't have any authority at that point. We're astronauts in space. Yeah, it's a weird way 
to exert that authority, but I was glad that they said, you have enough fuel to get home. So they might not have done it had it meant everyone's death. It's only because of Foman that things become a danger. I have to presume it's the balloons or something. They they were waiting for the right time to turn the balloon thing on, and that was going to be... There was something about the fuel. They had enough to do it slowly. They didn't have enough fuel to burn rubber and to get out of the blast radius. They had to wait for the orbit. They were in an orbit, and when they were lined up, it would have been a much shorter trip. It would have been a straight line trip. Right, yeah. But I, I think all of this is good, and, and it brings Hal back into the thing, because now Hal is responsible for a new launch. It's not a part of the programming. Is he going to get paranoid again? Do we lie to him again? And if so, is that going to set him up? I do feel like they've really brought back the threat of Hal in a cool way here, too, at the end. No, no. Lying to Hal was never a problem. Telling Hal to lie was the problem. So you can lie to Hal all you want. Well, well, I, no, the way they frame it here, it was lying to him. They lied to him, and in turn, he had to tell a lie. That, that's, that's all the tension is set up here is, do you lie to Hal? Because if he figures out you're lying, is he going to turn on you? No, 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 no. What they said is, Hal was told the truth by the U.S. government and told not to tell the mission to Frank and Dave. The whole problem was Hal was instructed to lie. Now, I think they just don't trust Hal, and so they're afraid if he detects duplicity— Will he be willing to sacrifice himself for the human crew members? They don't know that. But lying to Hal isn't what broke Hal's programming. Telling Hal to lie is what broke Hal's programming. Yeah, I, I think that they're a little bit inconsistent here. Because I, I, the impression I got at the end here, they're nervous about if we lie to him, is he going to detect that and turn on us? Well, yeah, but that's because of self-preservation. I think Arnie's actually nailed it. I do think, yeah, as I parse this out, what they're concerned about is last time Hal made a mistake and the astronauts started talking about turning him off. Well, now they're talking about dumping him into a sun. So what's he going to do about that? Is he going to be cool with sacrificing himself? I think that's the tricky. You're right. It's not that they're lying to him. It's that the truth may set him off again. Uh, however you want to look at it, I do feel like it, it makes Hal important, whereas it was kind of disappointing in the middle of this where everything was fine and, and nobody was having any problems and they had this kill switch if he should act out. Now we find out the kill switch was deactivated by Chandra and they really have to rely on Hal as they're using the discovery as a booster to get the Russian ship out of there. And I really like this moment. This is, you know, Hal was the best character in 2001. He, that's what people think of when they think of that film. And this moment of tension, if we tell him, Hey, you're going to die by setting off your boosters, but you're going to save all of us. Is that going to, is he going to comply or is he going to turn against us? And that Chandra has to sit there and decide if he's going to tell the truth. I really like this moment, this climax. I, this film never really feels like it has much of a plot that it's building to something. But I like this moment here. This is some good tension for a climax. This is my favorite scene in the movie, and I don't want to be misunderstood from what I said earlier. I was surprised Hal came back because I thought his story was done, but I was happy to see him because, yeah, he's what I knew most going into 2001, let alone coming out of it. So I was really curious where this would go. I'm always nervous now by Hal because I know what he did. Can he be trusted for this? This was the moment of the film that I was most invested 
Yeah, it's a good tension, good scene, and I want to just point out, too, the monolith is freaking me out, too. All of that stuff with it disappearing, and then there's a little black spot on Jupiter today. Oh, man, I was singing Sting. I was really worried what was going on in Jupiter. I, I If I had known that it was just turning into a star, well, I guess that's still pretty bad. But the ominous portent about what the monolith could be up to, now that we know it's capable of killing us, that it doesn't like us, I'm afraid. I'm literally afraid for these crew members. I'm wondering how they're going to get away and what's going to happen. And at this point, I mean, you're saying it doesn't like us. It must like us well enough if, I mean, I'm presuming that whatever Dave is now, he's not himself. He is at some point become part alien or he's dead but the aliens are using him to communicate with us because at least he was human and so they must like us well enough to tell us to get out right i'm wondering if dave is our advocate for this alien race that the aliens would not have warned us but because dave is a part of them now he's like eh let me help out my peeps let me go tell them what's going on i do feel like there's still some dave bowman in what's appearing to them and i feel like because he was human that's why he's helping the humans but i'm not convinced that the monolith and and the rest of the alien culture it's with us i i feel like everything for them is about europa and we can do whatever we want in the rest of the solar system but butt out of that but this end of this movie, it always made me feel like they created the second son for Earth. It's because of the Scheider voiceover stuff that yeah. he really wants us to believe that this is going to melt the Cold War. Like, as if global warming weren't a problem. Yay, we no longer have night and we have another sun beating <laughs> down on us. That doesn't seem like great news for nocturnal animals or for anyone, really. And the gravitational pull of another sun would pull the moon and most of the planets in our solar system, including Earth, off its orbit. The temperature of another sun, even that far away, would change our entire climate. Yeah, we should have peace for the last few days we're alive. <laughs> <laughs> it can't be good news. It's not something wonderful. I would not see it as a token for us to all get along. I, I think that that's how Roy Scheider would like it to seem because this movie is telling us that human beings matter. I think Arthur C. Clarke's text and what's really happening with Europa tells us that we've moved on from human beings, that the monolith, the real main character of this story, of this franchise, it's got other things cooking and, and we're incidental. Yeah, I'm shocked by this ending because I, I haven't read the book, but everything here tells me that this is about you guys can't get along, so you're not worthy anymore. God is right. moving on because you guys are little children fighting over stupid things. But then it's let's give peace a chance and there's going to be children of the new sun and they'll all get along like all this gobbledygook, the poetry at the end of this film. Just It seems inconsistent with where it was going. I feel like Jacob's going to create a meme with the monolith that says, this is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> <laughs> I was just confused. I was realizing by this point that while I was happy to take it back to this universe, this vision of a f possible future, all the questions I had about Space Baby and monolith are being answered in unsatisfactory ways. I'm getting answers. They're just not very inventive. I feel the same way about Hal. I, I do not buy this hogwash that because we told him to lie to two crew members we didn't actually tell him to lie we told him to withhold information which that bitch then gossiped about he was like dave did you hear the one about the alien he fucking did that i'm sorry 
I, I'm not buying that as a reason for his paranoia and certainly for his murderous tendencies. That, that these don't sit well with me. I'm fine with the incompleteness of the monolith. I think the monolith is a metaphor for what can't be understood. But how? No, they screwed that up. The end of the film, we see. I, I guess it's not the same monolith that was floating out in Jupiter. We see Europa. Is this like the next day? Is this millions of years later? Because now all of a sudden now it's a swamp. Like there's lots of life going on in Europa at this point. Uh, maybe that organic chlorophyll was all underneath the surface and a new sun made everything melt. I That's kind of how I took it. I don't think it's been – I don't think we're in 2061 yet. I think that we're still within the same calendar year. I do think that, yes, this is a magical transformation that happens from a magical device. I guess since we're not allowed to go back to Europa, we'll never find out. Yeah. Well, let's find out if we'd want to. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend 2010? Jacob. You know, again, I, I, it's so intrigued about how do you follow up such a iconic films, one that is considered by many, myself included, one of the greatest films, if not the greatest film ever. How do you do a sequel to that? How do you do a sequel to Citizen Kane? Like, you don't. That That's the answer. But this film, I don't know. I feel like because it, it's more road, they'd go with this more standard science fiction type story. I, I feel like I could separate it. And I, I feel like... This film is—is it amazing? Is it great? No, but I think it's a—it's a pretty decent sci-fi film. It, it's kind of scattered with its ideas. You never quite know what the plot is building up to, but I think there are definitely some great moments of tension. Uh, the spacewalk, the moment with Hal at the end of the film—it's uh, it, one that I'm interested in. I, again, are the answers satisfying? Well, if if you're totally left clueless by 2001 and you don't want to think about it too much, then yeah, I guess here's a film for you. I kind of go with, you know, here's a, a B science fiction film that's, you know, it's not about space warriors and laser guns. It's it's more of a hard sci-fi film about space exploration. And yeah, it, it's a very 80s film with the Cold War. And I, I don't know if I buy the end, but uh, it's it's worth checking out, it's, you know. I, a mild recommend. It's a, I, I'm not hot or cold on it. There's not a second sun warming my heart up to this film, but yeah, mild recommend. Stuart. You know, it's really amusing to me that Kubrick's vision was so alarming to people that they had to do this. It was like, we can't just leave it with the feelings that it's incomprehensible. We have to record the Muzak version. That's what I feel like. It was like, we had this atonal score, and now we have to do the baby Einstein version. We have to just make it palatable for everyone that was just too upset. Or, you know, it was like, I'm not going into that neighborhood until they open a Starbucks. I, I just feel like this movie was made for tourists. It wasn't made for the fans of Kubrick. And it's mediocrity underlines Kubrick's greatness. So I love it just for that. It just shows you that if 2001 had been made by any hack director, it wouldn't be half the film that it is. It just reaffirms why I love Kubrick's vision. But because it doesn't live up to what the original did, because it's narratively disjointed and technically insufficient, and it diminishes the wonder, does that damn it? I think all they had to do was make something that didn't hurt the first film. Watching 2010 does not make me think less of 2001. It's a perfectly acceptable, mediocre space adventure. It's at least as good as other 2001 ripoffs. I think it's as good as Contact. I think it's better than Prometheus. So we've seen this kind of thing before. I can give it a mild recommend, but 
no, it's not a second son breathing new life into this franchise. I'm I'm not terribly upset that there hasn't been a 2061 or 3001 film yet. And me, I was the least enamored of the three of us with 2001, perhaps because I saw it later in life or perhaps just because I'm more focused on narrative than sensory experience. But the reason I gave 2001 a green arrow was because primarily of the cinematography and the score. There was an artistry to it that buoyed a movie that I felt was narratively a mess, primarily just because of changes made in post, such as Stuart mentioned the removal of the narrative that made the film more confusing. So coming into the second one, I would not have wanted a film that, to use Stuart's word, obtuse, made by a lesser craftsman. If you get somebody without the eye of Kubrick behind that lens and try to make that same movie, that's going to be a arrow so red it would be crimson. So I'm glad that what we have here is just more rote. It tries to answer the questions. It does so in an unsatisfying way. So for its connections to 2001, if you're coming in the way I did, I want to know about the space baby and the monolith. I want the answers. I'm going to give that a not recommend because I don't think they're very satisfying. But the movie as a whole, I'm going to give it a weak recommend along with you guys because I view it as a perfectly acceptable, entertaining sci-fi film of its period. It's really a time capsule for me. It's because I've never seen it, but all of its themes, its actors, its effects, this could have been made in no other year than 1984. And... If you can accept that or you want to go back and visit that time, yeah, I recommend it. It's There's better films from 1984, there's better sci-fi films, and there's better looking films in this series. It just goes to show that the look of a film can't be overstated. And this one feels very blah, but it tried to make up for it with a narrative that's also kind of blah. But I had fun for the two hours I watched it. I just... Don't think I'll ever return to it. So you were very on the rope with 2001. It sounds like you're very on the rope with 2010. At least tell me you think 2001 is the better film. <laughs> pause. Oh my God. What a Silence. dramatic pause. I was, I, I was, I was <laughs> expecting a quick absolutely. And now I, I'm concerned. <laughs> More silence. Are you there, Arnie? Are I'm you thinking, on mute? I'm thinking. <laughs> um, what I'll say Ground is... Ground control, the major, Tom. I will never revisit 2010, even though I thought it was fine. And I plan on rewatching 2001. So, I yes, it is... 2001 Woo! is so visually amazing that, yes, it holds up better than 2010, and it has more worth seeing. 2010 is very rote, and I would never say, you have to see this. Whereas with 2001, I watched it, and again, I told my wife, you have to see this. Who cares what it's about? Don't even ask me questions about the plot. (laughs) I I don't want to hear it, but you have to see it. Yeah, 2001 is art, and this one is, it's not. And I think for some people, that will be a relief. I have known people, and there have been times in my life where I said, 2010 is the better film because I know what's going on, and I'm invested in the characters. And I get that, but 
boy, is that hard to understand when I, when I have the appreciation for the art. I just when someone gives you a gift like 2001 to go with something lesser, I it's baffling. Now I want to just close out. This is a two part podcast. But it is possible somewhere down the road that we could get 3001 if Tom Hanks has his way. He has been trying behind the scenes ever since Apollo 13 to get a movie he would star and direct in for 3001. They're going to skip 2061 or combine it with the new film. But he wants to go there. He wants to close out the trilogy. You excited? I'm not invested enough in this series where I would want to see another one come along that isn't just an absolute visual and auditory marvel. You know, if they make one, I'll see it even if we're not going to podcast on it, though we always would. But Yeah, not an option. You will see it. (laughs) But would you want to see it if there were no now playing? Sounds like you might rent it. I'm a completionist by nature. This is why now playing's here. I would see it, but I'm not pining for it. Yeah, I don't know if I'm excited about Tom Hanks, but I do like this universe. I do like what I've seen. Even if this second film is lesser, I, I still like the ideas it's exploring, and I would want to revisit it. Yeah, 2010 was a minor hit. I mean, it wasn't a flop. They made about $40 million and it did okay on video. The brand is strong enough. The love is still there for the original. They could find the financing to do it, but I'm not sure that the books are strong enough. You'll have to join me. I'm going to finish it out. We're going to, for the next two weeks at Books and Nachos, read 2061, read 3001. I'm not sure that they wouldn't need to create some newer storylines to finesse what Arthur C. Clark himself was maybe only half invested in. We'll see. I, of course, would like to see a continuation of the artistry of Kubrick, but that seems impossible. So I'm wondering if indeed the true heir to 2001 is what we're going to get this fall. If It might not be Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. The premise of this movie is that Matthew McConaughey is going to find a way to travel great distances through our cosmos. It looks very much like Nolan is having his eye at 2001 and seeing if he can't best it. I'm excited, and who knows? Maybe if there's room in the calendar, you'll hear about it this November. Well, room on the calendar could be made. It's a very full calendar as it is. We've got a lot of corn to harvest, but... We always try to squeeze in extra shows, and we are motivated by love of film, by, in Stewart's case, severe love of Nolan, and also our ability to do it thanks to your donations. We have our donation drive going on. Planet of the Apes continues. That's right. We're going back to Stephen King next week, God forbid. But if you would like to hear more good sci-fi, please join us on Fridays as we continue on through the Planet of the Apes saga, the original five movies, the Tim Burton remake, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is looking pretty damn good. It's out next month, and I've got a feeling that that might be a green arrow. So hopefully, if you love science fiction, you can find the $25 to hear our thoughts on all eight of those films, as well as the four Matrix movies, and Ju- oh, Jupiter Ascending. Yeah! Can I tell you the disappointment? The day, within an hour of us releasing our (laughs) 2001 podcast, discussing 2001 A Space Odyssey, and I'm really looking forward to listener discussion about it. All anyone's asking about is (laughs) Jupiter Ascending. Yeah, and it's the first time they're asking. No one seemed to care until now. But now that it's gone, they knew they wanted it. Yes. 
Well, we are going to give it to them when it comes out, whenever it comes out. If you've donated to hear that show, we're going to record that one day. You'll hear those thoughts. But we do want to give you a fifth movie this July. So what, guys? Go, Speed Racer, go. Yeah, okay. A much maligned film, I think an underrated film, but regardless of what we all think, I think it'll be a great discussion. Yeah, I know you're a fan. I haven't seen it. I don't really like the animated show, but I think that it could be fun. I saw it one day when I was home from work sick, and maybe I'll get sick again. (laughs) But we had discussed doing it because Jacob is an unlikely fan, and we saw the request that we might do it as a bonus show. So yes, donors at the silver level or the gold level are going to get the four Matrix podcasts that are already released, plus when we were going to release Jupiter Ascending, you will now get Speed Racer, and then only for donors who donate by July 31st, next February... Oh, is that where they're dumping it? If it holds to that date, when we get a chance to review it, you will get the review of Jupiter Ascending as well. So silver donors are now getting six films because the studio shivved me. <laughs> it is so hard to plan now playing schedule. I just want to put that in. It's it's really, really difficult when they play this mix and match with all the movie releases. It frustrates me, but you're going to get it. We said you're going to get it and we'll stand by that, but you're going to wait. And so in order to pass the time, the placeholder is Speed Racer. And, you know, I think it's probably going to be a good discussion in and of itself. All of those details are now up at the donation page. So for a $10 silver donation, you now get six podcasts. And if you do gold donation of $25 or more, you get 14 podcasts, which makes me feel so much better. I always knew 13 was an unlucky number for the gold. (laughs) Perhaps that's why the film got moved. Yeah, I think it is. So now 14 podcasts for $25 or more. So please donate before the end of July at nowplayingpodcast.com. And if they moved on to the Planet of the Apes, we'll have a video of me just basically just vomiting on whoever is responsible for that choice. I'll just like run up and like bum rush them and just knock them over. Two apes, one cup. Yeah. I, no, it won't be like that. It'll be uglier. Uglier than that. We'll have Stuart with apes reaction videos on YouTube because the video itself is too shocking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, the donation money will be going to get me out of jail. <laughs> So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? I really think I'm entitled to an answer to that question. I know everything hasn't been quite right with me. But I can assure you now, very confidently, 
that it's going to be all right again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. It is the most important message you have ever sent. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another in-depth movie review. It's all very clear to me now. The whole thing. It's wonderful. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other films such as The Shining, The Social Network, The Wolf of Wall Street, The Aviator, Shutter Island, and hundreds more. My God, it's full of stars. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss these films with other listeners. I enjoy working with people. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. And, of course, his uh, congratulations on your discovery, which may well prove to be among the most significant in the history of science. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. First of all, I bring a personal message from Dr. Howell, who has asked me to convey his deepest appreciation to all of you for the many sacrifices you have to make. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. Oh, by the way, I wanted to say to both of you, I think you've done a wonderful job. I appreciate the way you've handled this thing. Now playing credit narration by Brock. Quickly get adjusted to the idea that he talks and you think of him really just as another person. Now playing is not affiliated with MGM Studios or Warner Brothers Studios. These films are the property of their copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Are there any more questions? The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. Now, uh... I know there have been some conflicting views held by some of you. Now playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Thank you for a very enjoyable game. Yeah, thank you. Today we're discussing... Uh... Uh, wait, I'm, I'm just going to time it with you. Uh, that, that's incredibly <laughs> distracting. <laughs> I can see you're not a team player here. You're the Russians, I'm the American, and I'll just stop. Oh, it's just incredibly distracting. I got it. I mean, Plus, it's going to be playing behind me anyway. I, I'm going to be using that music fading out behind me, so you're going to be singing against it. Okay, I can do that. Starring Roy Schneider, John no. Lithgow. It's you always you did this all through Jaws. It's Schneider, Schneider. <laughs> Schneider was on what Alice? I yeah, I'm gonna make the time. Yeah, I'm gonna make the same mistake as Arnie. Then <laughs> I always thought it was Schneider. No, Schneider, Schneider, Schneider. Okay, <laughs> I even wrote down Schneider. Yeah, in my notes, it says Schneider everywhere. <laughs> I'll just call him Floyd. <laughs> You mean he's not Rob's dad? That's what I'm thinking. Rob Schneider, Roy Schneider. That would be terrific casting, wouldn't it? <laughs> Today we're discussing 2010, the year we made contact. Make. <laughs> There's actually like three subtitles. There's the year we make contact, Odyssey continues, Odyssey 2. Take your pick. <laughs>
the one guy that we liked, I think, uh, from the cosmonauts, the one with personality, the one that lifted his lid and smelled the meat. Um, yeah, dead. <laughs> sounds so dirty. <laughs> well, I didn't mean it as such, but yeah, he's. 2001's the better film because I understand what's going on and because I'm invested in the characters. 2010? Yeah.